Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. We're back for Solidarity Breakfast and it's Annie and Rebecca are here today. And uh, we're happy to be uh, talk, having a chat with you all through the morning uh, from now to nine o'clock. G'day, Rebecca. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Yeah. It's a beautiful day outside. It is. It made me uh, yeah, even more excited to come down to the studio. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. How uh, instead of coming here in the cold in the winter. And dark. Dark. <laughs> <laughs> having the uh, whole world awake while uh, hardly anybody's in it is really nice. Yes, except that we've got daylight savings tomorrow, so it's oh, going to yes. go back an hour. <laughs> yeah, just to remind everybody, yeah, yeah. daylight saving tomorrow. Uh, and, of course, there are people out there who aren't listening to us live. They'll be listening to us later. So uh, yep. this is all irrelevant. But you will you will be pleased for us that we're having a nice time yes. on Solidarity Breakfast here on 3CR on this morning. We've got a variety of things to talk about today. We're going to talk to Don Sutherland first up. We're going to talk all about uh, what Brendan O'Connor, Labor's IR spokesperson, has got to say about what Labor is saying they're interested in doing. Uh, We're going to move on to uh, talk uh, to some women from down at uh, Geelong Trades Hall who have got a conference coming up. And uh, we're going to follow that up with uh, a bit of peace talk uh, around what uh, University of Melbourne is doing. It's part of an ongoing targeting of university funding that uh, is related to armaments. And Melbourne Uni has been busily signing contracts with Lockheed Martin and uh, the uh, medical practitioners uh, a medical association for the prevention of war has uh, raised a petition for people to sign around uh, asking Melbourne Melbourne University, please explain. So we're having a yarn about that and uh, other things to do with peace. So uh, before we get on, we'll uh, give you a couple of important messages. Join 3CR's breakfast teams at our annual film fundraiser on Saturday, October 13th. At Loop Project Space and Bar. 23 Myers Place, Nam. And we'll be screening the film Life is Waiting, looking at referendum and resistance in Western Sahara, followed by a post-show live panel discussion featuring Kamal Fadel from the Australian Western Sahara Association. Now, tickets are a good $15 for the waged and $5 unwaged at the door, so... 
come along, have a bit of fun. All proceeds go to Keeping Breakfast Programming on air as 3CR, so you can keep hearing these beautiful voices we have at our radio station. And that, again, will be on Saturday, the 13th of October from 5 p.m. Film starts at 6, um, preferably show up by 5.30, and hopefully to see you all lovely people there. Well, I love 3CR, and so I'm going to definitely be there. The Environmental Film Festival Australia is on again. See the impact of climate change and meet heroes fighting for justice. Witness the beauty of nature and hear the sounds of our world. Meet the filmmakers and experts inspiring change and join the conversation to create a sustainable future. Face the facts, face the future, face the films. The Environmental Film Festival Australia, in Melbourne from October the 11th to the 19th. Tickets at effa.org.au. We'll go 3CR supporter. And as you heard me say, we'll go to Don. G'day, Don. How are you? I'm really well, thanks, Annie, and best wishes to you as well. I hope uh, hope you are well and all your listeners. Yes, and in the studio I'm joined by a new team member, Rebecca. So we're going to have a yarn with Rebecca, you and me, and uh, we'll kick off uh, the... Uh, the uh, chat with uh, a little bit of a look at what Brendan O'Connor, Labor's industrial relations spokesperson, has to say about how Labor is going to handle industrial relations. There's some pretty important questions that have to be asked, aren't there? Aren't there? I think that's correct. And uh, last week, uh, Brendan O'Connor gave a very interesting interview with Michelle Grattan that was podcast via the uh, online news review uh, service called The Conversation. Um, before having a closer look at that, though, I think it's worthwhile uh, reminding ourselves of the context in which uh, statements uh, uh, made by people like Brendan O'Connor, who, of course, is uh, likely to be the, uh, the Minister for Workplace and Industrial Relations in a uh, prospective Labor government. Uh, we have to remember, firstly... Uh, that the Change the Rules campaign is continuing to grow effectively as an electoral campaign, not an industrial campaign. Secondly, there is an ALP federal conference in December, uh, the one that was uh, uh, deferred because of the by-elections arising from the constitutional problems faced by certain members. Oh, I had forgotten that. Yeah, so the, the ALP Federal Conference is going to be a major opportunity for both the government and the employers to dilute and, uh, if possible, uh, pull, apart, pull apart the uh, objectives of the Change the Rules campaign. And therefore, that, infect, that affects the tactical and strategic thinking of people, not just in the ALP, but also, of course, in the leadership of the union movement about how to manage the Change the Rules campaign. Because, of course, uh, when it comes to politics, it's all about uh, corralling the power interests into a corner and making it the best option for them to do the right thing. Yes, and I think we have to pay attention to what's going on. Those of us who want to see uh, a very significant change 
to the workplace and industrial rules that are so broken. If we want that, we do have to take account of what the enemy is up to. And that includes looking very critically, and I don't mean necessarily in a hostile way, but with really constructive, critical eyes at interviews like the one that Brendan O'Connor has just made. Now, in addition to that, strike levels in Australia are appallingly low. (laughs) (laughs) You might be the only person in Australia that wants to say that, Don. No, I would love to say that. Yes, so we have to be aware that there is no spirit at all in our movement to defy the law. There is, there is a strong spirit to change it, but no spirit at this time. There is only a latent potential for it to be defied. Uh, now, that's a very interesting point. So the, uh, the uh, animals in, um, in the stocks of, you know, pulling things along uh, are hopeful that uh, they won't uh, be whipped more than... Uh, wanting to change the weight of the stock. Yes, well, I think there's, there's really no spirit of leadership to defy, and there is no spirit of pressure from below to defy. Yeah, there's a small group of people who are talking about the right to strike, and there are people who are quite uh, keen for that to be put into the centre stage, but what you're saying is that you fear that that might be too small a group of people. I think it is too small at the moment, although I think it is also, I think uh, that uh, that part of the Change the Rules campaign is also growing, although not strongly enough. Why do you think it's so important? Don, Don, why do you think that's so important? Well, it's so important because it's all about power for workers. It's not about more power for the Fair Work Commission or the Fair Work Ombudsman, which appears to be emerging as a prime uh, a prime priority from the voices of the ACTU and some unions. And the right to strike is about power in the hands of workers. And I would add that it is the key to the regrowth of unionism. Well, you know, it's interesting you should say this, Don, because what we've been watching under the Fair Work Commission's um, Fair Work Act is that uh, even within the framework of protected action, that uh, different industries have gone on protected action. And then employers, big employers, mining companies and people of that nature, have then said over a period of time they've dragged their feet on actually doing the EBA negotiations. And then when the uh, workers balk at the underwhelming uh offer that the company has given them or the the offer that says we're going to get rid of all your conditions and lower your wages, uh, they say, go back to the Fair Work Commission because the Act allows it and says, oh, we they're intractable, we can't chat, we can't work it out, so we have to go back to the modern award. That's what they've done. Well, that's, that's quite common. That, that's exactly right. And the broken rules enable employers to exercise their power in negotiations like that. Well, how is going on strike going to change that situation if you're in, in a non-powerful position? Well, it depends how it's developed. Right. Uh, I, I, I think that you've got to have a proper strategy rather than just calling for it. 
and I think the opportunity to do so, if there is the serious thought given to it, arises in the context that just another part of the jigsaw is that the process for the start, sorry, the start of the process for the National Wage Case 2019 is just a few weeks away. So uh, what we have coinciding with assuming that the federal election is in May next year, we have also the opportunity for a defiance, not just compliance campaign around raising the minimum wage. So, so are you saying? Are you really saying that uh, people should stop being captured by the bourgeois ideology and actually focus on class issues, class interest? Absolutely, and I think and and, and stop being bogged in fragmented approaches to dealing with the problems of inequality and poverty and so on. Now, the Change the Rules campaign as an electoral strategy is significantly good in that regard. But the question is this. Has there ever been a time in Australian Labor history where significant progress for workers, including in the growth of unions and in making gains, has has it ever been achieved through asking for the rules to be changed first. Asking permission. (laughs) Using the new rules. No, Mm. the answer to that is no. All of the major gains, including improvements to the rules, have come about because of action that defies the rules. The last big, really big, national effort to defy and change the penal clauses in night, back in 1969, which of course will be the subject of big anniversary next uh, next year. That's the Clary that O'Shea. Was on the basis of defiance. That's the Clary O'Shea uh, um, issue, right? Yeah, that's the so-called uh, Clary O'Shea um, dispute, which uh, was a national strikes in uh, to ensure that uh, Clary O'Shea will not be jailed for refusing to pay fines that were imposed by the fair, uh, what was, wasn't called the Fair Work No, the Commission Arbitration then. Commission. Uh, yeah, the Arbitration Commission. Uh, for uh, And so he was defying the rules, and the workers all over the country defied the, defied the rules. And the upshot of that was that the rules were not changed, but they were rendered inoperative. They were squashed. Yeah, I just remind Don. I'll just remind the listeners that they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast. They're on three CR, and uh, we're talking to Don Sutherland about IR issues. Let's, can we go back now to now that you've given context? Yes. Can we yes. now have a look at listen to what Brendan O'Connor, what you you believe Brendan O'Connor was saying in regards to well, yeah. IR? Well, it was a it was a very I think it's a quite an important interview, and there are other. Uh, reference you can make to sort of, if you like, um, uh, look more closely at what Brendan O'Connor is saying. He, he was very polished, I have to say. Oh, well, he is. Because the interview, the interview uh, actually raised some of the points of attack that will be used by employers and, of course, the Morrison government to pick apart what Labor is going to do. Now, the first thing is that it, what he is doing and what the opposition is generally doing 
is releasing bits and pieces progressively of what the Labor Party priorities will be in regard to workplace relations. And some of them are positive reforms on the face of it. So in this interview, the first thing that he deals with is that uh, is the current Ensuring Integrity Bill that has been brought forward again yeah. by the new, the new Workplace Relations Minister, which is, of course, a systematic attack on the whole of the union movement and the rights of workers to have unions that are effective. And he makes it quite clear that Labor, and I think... To oh, about, I don't know, we'll give a recap to people, you know. What that's yeah. about is uh, giving bosses the right to decide who is your union who, who runs your union, effectively? Uh, yes, well, other <laughs> things as well. It imposes, it imposes uh, restrictions and conditions upon how union elected union representatives can operate, which are far in excess of that which is expected of uh, directors and so on of corporations. It's just an outrage, basically. It is an outrage. Yeah. Um, and it's been now, kicked it's out several times and it's come back again like a bad smell. Yes. It, it, in fact, it's been sitting around for 12 months yeah. and there has been up to now very little support, well, nowhere near enough support from the crossbenchers for the government to get it through because it is so unfair. And it shouldn't even be there. I mean, it it, it, it's an affront to Australian democracy that that legislation should be there at all. Well, it's there in the form of a bill yet. Thank goodness it's not uh, legislation because it really would do a lot of harm to all unions, even though, as O'Connor very, very effectively points out, that although the government says the necessity for the bill, their point of attack is the so-called uh, misbehaviour of uh, officials in the CFMMEU, oh. particularly the construction division. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's all about that. But it's of all course, bullshit. The bill is constructed to attack all unions, and O'Connor deals with that very well. The uh, the question then turns to her, uh, raised by Michelle Bratton in interviewing him, is what would Labor do about what she calls rogue union action? Rogue union uh, action. Yeah, right, yeah, okay. Did he ask her to name the rogue union action? Oh, yes, oh, yes. It's all focused upon the CFMMEU. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. The construction division. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's all focused. In the middle of a building boom. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and he he responds and he says, well, firstly, that um, that Labor won't condone uh, uh, rogue conduct. (laughs) It's like having rogue elephants running through the CBD. Yeah, go on. And, and would aim to stamp it out when it was improper, when any conduct was improper and unlawful. Yeah, because we have laws, you know. What are the laws going to be? That leaves begging that question. Uh, he goes on and says that in that context, that Labor would get rid of the ABCC. Woo! He, he's quite clear about that. Good. He does, not, he does not see Labor ever wanting two sets of laws for working people. <sighs> and... He said there will be fines for anyone who breaks the laws. Um, And then he presents, under further questioning, from uh, from Michelle Grattan, and he returns to it later, uh, he presents an argument about what Labor would do in order to reduce 
the likelihood of this so-called rogue behaviour, which is, even on their own admission, uh, restricted uh, to uh, some elements of one union, and even that's arguable, as we know. Yeah, but well, go on. What, what, what he puts forward is that Labor would uh, seek to ensure cooperation amongst employers and unions and workers and bring that into all sectors of the economy, including, of course, construction. That sounds like the accord. Uh-huh. Well, he doesn't raise that phrase, but certainly that philosophy. Now, you've got to remember that that's exactly the process that Julia Gillard used in 2007 and 2009 yeah. to construct what we now know to be the broken rules of the Fair Work Act of 2009. And, and, and what happens is that people think that they're all going to be pally and they're all going to work together. But the problem is that the working class are prepared to work with each other and then the boss class just decides, oh, it's too expensive, doesn't work for us, and we're sociopaths anyway, so we're going to flick them. Yes, well, the, I, think, I think O'Connor is not so naive as to believe that there is... Uh, no conflict inherent in the employer-employee relationship. Of course, there is, because it's based upon exploitation. Yeah. Now, what he's saying, though, is that by creating a framework of cooperation, then that will that will reduce the conflict and will reduce the likelihood of rogue behaviour. So that's the formula that he advocates as being the basis of the changes to the law that the government will make. Okay, now because we're coming up to the end very quickly and very soon, I I would like to I would like to bring in um, very quickly. uh, I mean, because we're talking about politics here, and obviously these people are beholden to a lot of powers. Um, There's a lot of uh, issues that are focused on inequality, low pay, insecure work. Do you think that quite a lot of the uh, policies that the Labor are going to put forward that uh, even things up are going to be focused exclusively on the low paid and therefore they fulfil their political obligation rather than altering the whole infrastructure? Well, the short answer is yes. Uh, And I'll give an example of why I think like that, is that uh, the ACTU and Sally McManus made a very important speech the other night and the text of that speech is not yet publicly available but there's been good news reporting of it. I think it's been good. I mean, you can only take it at face value. Go on, get on with it. She puts a big emphasis, she puts a big emphasis on multi-employer bargaining or sexual bargaining uh, to break away from the limits and problems presented by enterprise bargaining. Now, his response to that is relevant to your question. He he sort of says, without developing it, that that the that a prospective Labor government will sit down and talk with both the employers and the unions about the possibility of multi employer bargaining for the low low paid stream. That's the phrase he uses. In right. other words In other words, somehow or other, they are thinking about breaking apart enterprise bargaining just a tiny bit by having multi-employer bargaining that is more effective 
but limited only to low-paid workers. Now, how you work out the difference between a low-paid worker and what someone... Oh, yeah. Does, does that mean teachers at universities or or just uh, people working in fast food outlets? Who knows? Who knows where it's at? Because it's all the but same. This is, this is how... This is what he has said in this interview at the conversation. It's available online, of course, if you... Google the conversation, you can pretty quickly find the interview and listen to it. So uh, then you have, you see, what we see, and there's a number of other bits of policy that they have that they have dropped, dealing with the definition of casuals, for example, dealing with um, uh, making sure that labour hire workers, they, they say they can make sure that labour hire workers can be paid the same as those who are directly employed within an enterprise. Which is what and the then, right and proper, yeah. Uh, and that, you you so were saying... Quite actually, oh, no, that's actually very important. Yeah, you were saying that, uh, Don, you were saying that uh, uh, the policy uh, of uh, their IR policy is more reflected on what uh, Bill Shorten and Brendan O'Connor want to say as opposed to what the stated uh, policy of the Labor Party is. Would that be fair to say he that? Also, he actually, I think it's quite another angle is that the policy that the uh, that Labor will take the, to the election will be determined, in a, in a sense, by the parliamentary Labor Party, in particular the major players like himself and, of course, Bill Shorten and a couple of other ministers. Not, not the so they will take into account the policy as developed by the members and adopted at the federal conference, they will take that into account, but it won't necessarily be the policy that they pursue and enact. That will also be influenced in their discussions equally, and he was at great pains to point out that he would treat the employers in the same way as the unions in developing their approach. Maybe it would have been better if he had said that he would treat the workers in the same way as he would treat the directors of companies. Well, who know? Who know, I think there's a much better. I mean, how it's a it's a sign of the situation, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. That have Labor openly admitting that they will deal with the the employing class who are the major protagonists of the assault on working people in the same way on the basis of equality as the representatives of working people. Anyway, Don, Don, I'm sorry, we really have to... Don, we really have to finish here. Um, I'll have to say on as a, fi- a finishing note that uh, as someone said to me that uh, actually it doesn't really matter who you vote for as long as it's not for the Liberal Party. Well, that's, that's an old formulation, and uh, uh, however, that leaves open that people might vote for, for um, uh, Pauline Hanson. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. Well, that's a vote for the Liberals. Pauline Hanson's a vote for the Liberals. The mob called the Socialists is very, is very encouraging. Mm. And we must also remember that in some respects, the Greens' industrial relations policy is stronger from the point of view of workers than the Labor parties. All right. Well, now, we'll leave you there. Labor. No, we have to leave you there. Um, oh, I would love 
to say a little bit more about that. But anyway, that should get people thinking and talking, I hope. Yeah. Thanks very much, Don. Great to talk to you. everybody. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Join us for the launch of the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary on Saturday the 6th of October from 3 to 6pm at the Old Bar, Johnson Street, Fitzroy. There'll be readings as well as music from Cold Hands, Warm Heart and Laura McFarlane. Entry is free. Proceeds from the diary sales and 20% of the afternoon's bar takings will be donated to 3CR and the Rainforest Information Centre. So come read, drink and be merry. How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary Launch. The Old Bar, Saturday 6th of October, 3 to 6pm. See you there. A 3CR supporter. Earth's Walk This Way is back. Join us on Saturday, October 13th on a sponsored walk of Melbourne's beautiful Bayside Tracks to launch our new waste and consumption campaign and take action on climate change. Together, we'll walk 15 kilometres and raise $20,000 for Friends of the Earth. We will be highlighting key issues around climate resilience, rising sea levels and plastic pollution in our oceans. Getting involved is simple. Sign up online at walkthisway.org.au. Get sponsored Spread the word and get walking. Join us as we journey through coastal communities who are most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. We'll finish up with a community picnic in the Katani Gardens in St Kilda. Friends of the Earth is a proud supporter of CCR. And you're back with Annie on and Rebecca on Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, we were sp- speaking with Don Sutherland, doing a sort of roundup of uh, the lead up to the next federal election and the potential changes that the Labor Party, if they get in, might actually do, as opposed to what you imagine might happen or you would really wish would happen. But you know, politics being what it is. Uh, you've got to you know, keep an eye on the uh, practicalities of uh, what drives these people. Now, we're going to be talking now with uh, some uh, very positive uh, thing going on. Uh, as Rebecca gets them here online with us, we have to, there's a whole procedure here. We've got three people going to talk to us now. They're from uh, uh, Geelong Trade Hall. Oh, no. Didn't quite work. Hello, who's there? Hello uh, there. My yeah. name's Lisa Henderson. 
and we have Jackie Grin. Well, we may have. Actually, we may not. We may or we may not. So we're uh, not necessarily making... Uh, maybe we'll put some more music on and or you could speak for the group because we didn't quite make our great technical efforts. Um, never mind. Uh, but you can talk about uh, what's going on down at Geelong Working Women's Get Organised Conference, can't you? Can you tell us why... Geelong, what's happening at Trades Hall? That I mean, it's been I've been noticing that more and more events are going on down there that raise the issue of equal pay and women's rights. What's going on? Well, uh, hi there, it's Jackie here. Yeah. Um, uh, well, we got the conference happening, um, and Peter uh, was going to tell us about the conference, so. Uh, the conference we're having is called the Working Women Get Organised, and yeah, I'll just I'll just uh, get my notes. Sorry, tell us about the conference. So uh, the conference is called Working Women Get Organised: The Fight for Equal Pay, and uh, it's going to be open this year by the ACTU uh, National Campaign Organiser Cara Keys. Oh yes, it's going to focus on equal pay and the gender pay gap. What what uh, specific? Uh, I mean, it's it's great that this is sort of things happening. Uh, Geelong, in lots of ways, is a very large country town, but it's it's a sort of a uh, it, it. And how does this these campaigning work that you guys have been doing influence the mindset of people down that way? Can you repeat that question, please? Why, why is it so important? Why is it so important to have a conference like this in what is a country area? Well, I guess um, one of the things that um, we've looked at our our original conference um, focused on family and gendered violence, um, and we really. Um, we, We've made the link between family violence and unequal pay. Um, so it made sense that our second conference to focus on equal pay. So family violence is firstly caused when a perpetrator makes a choice to use violence and it sits in the context of unequal gendered relationships between men and women, the rigid ideas of gender and gendered roles, lack of power and opportunities for women in politics, um, and women having less financial access than men. And then we've got the social constructs that discriminate against women and privilege and advantage men. So our conference is going to look at the fight for equal pay in this context. Um, so because women tend to be clustered into roles such as nursing, teaching, retail, admin, social and community type roles and early education and care, um, which traditionally attract lower pay than those traditional male-dominated roles such as mining and construction. So the capitalistic patriarchy um, really allows the caring-type roles to be undervalued and disrespected, um, which then allows them to be underpaid and to attract lower conditions. So there's a direct link between unequal pay and family violence, um, so, and we know that unions have got a really proud history of fighting for human rights issues and family violence is a human rights issue, but it's also a union issue. Um, 
far too many women fall out of paid work because of family violence. And family violence doesn't only affect the individual woman. Um, it has ripple effects that compare through communities and workplaces. Um, and while Geelong is the second largest city in Victoria, it's still a regional centre. Um, and women living in regional areas are statistically more likely to experience family violence, partly because there's a higher likelihood um, of people in regional areas having more traditional views on women um, and more, more rigid thoughts on gender and gendered roles. Yeah, and, and women themselves feel this, and I think people in the city may not be aware that also pays are a lot less in country areas, a general yes, rule. Yes, yes, work work is harder to get. Um, and Geelong certainly does have a significant problem with family violence. And, you know, my understanding is that, you know, around 80% of police business in Geelong is directly or indirectly related to family violence. Oh, goodness, that's a lot. Yeah, yep. yeah, that's pretty. Um, you know, uh, like, it's very good work that you're doing. What was, I mean, you, this is not the first conference, this is the next conference. Uh, what's been the reaction of uh, the people who have come to your conference? Has it had a positive effect? Um, this is Jackie here. Yes, it's had a really big effect. Um, last year we were very much surprised because it was on family violence, generated a lot of interest um, and there was probably about 80 women altogether and men, um, possibly 100 over the day. That's, so that's a good turnout. Yeah, for Geelong and yeah. honestly it was our first conference. We just um, rank and file women that work full time and have all our busy lives but we um, there was a few of us got together. We thought we'd put on this conference. We tapped into um, the original reason for the conference was that... Um Hello? Yeah, yeah, sorry. So the, the, yeah. Sorry, I've got, I'm back again. Yeah. So um, originally the idea came about from the IWD last when the rally was so big and it was the biggest mobilisation of women we've seen for many years, but particularly young women. And so what we wanted to do is tap into the anger of these women, which was um, spawned out of um, the Donald Trump phenomenon and also it's kept going by the Me Too movement. So we wanted to have a conference that um, had a theme of sexism, which seems to be our in the Enduring Conference Theme. Yeah. Um, but when we getting back to Geelong, for instance, we've noticed that um, Geelong's, uh, as, that, as Adele said, it's um, it's, in, it's a town that's changing because of the changing dynamics of the closure of um, this, uh, the big four, such as Shell and Alcoa and Ford. Ford. Yeah. Um, and so what's happening is there's a lot more hospitality industry tourism. Uh, but what comes from that, there's a lot of uh, precarious... There's an increase in precarious work. There's the northern suburbs. There's a lot of unemployment. Um, and particularly youth unemployment. So women are particularly vulnerable to this sector. Uh, there's an increase in the disability sector also. And that 
in itself has a lot of precarious work. Of course, they're subject to privatisation and also almost sometimes I know workers that are almost on zero contract hours, so they might have an hour or you know, and they're driving everywhere to do um, yeah. little bits and pieces of work. So it's really... So it's disgraceful. Very, it's very much and unemployment is affecting our region. So so this conference, uh, this is about rank-and-file union women who are working to empower other rank-and-file union women. Well, it is to a degree, but it's open to everyone. So in... After saying that, we do have panels. The second panel is about um, the... I can't remember who's on it, actually. Sorry, the hospital workers. Oh, really? Um, yes. And then we've got... Um, the United Voice. Oh, yes, United Voice. And the childcare workers are talking about their campaign. Big steps. So it really... Yeah covers quite a spectrum. So we've tried to encourage other women to come that are either union and non-union workers. Those who educate the non-union workers that you can empower yourself and become union, as you know, the unionised workforce are better paid. And that is a fact. And that's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to empower and educate people on unionism and encourage um, a bigger density of unionism. Yeah. And and we're, we're, the, the lens we're looking at the fight for equal pay is through a gendered lens and we're looking at um, in the context of family and gendered violence against women, um, sexual assault and sexual harassment of women. Um and we're looking at, um, so you know that we know that union women have lots of complex and challenging issues at work. Um, and traditional union approaches to organising for women may not have perhaps accurately captured the diversity of women working women's experiences. Um, so we're going to look at it. Um, in the context of, you know, that social and political um, in, industrial context of the gendered pay gap, gendered violence at work and family violence at home. And I guess also when you say that, uh, actually the true uh, picture of who are union. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, the, our, the biggest... Strength, or one of the biggest strengths of um, an active and engaged union movement is its diversity. Our diversity and our collective approach is our absolute strength and it's absolutely the way forward. Thanks for uh, taking time. I'm sorry our technical difficulties uh, made it a little bit less uh, fluid, but thanks for uh, being flexible and... Uh, Letting our listeners know more about it. Tell tell us uh, the date and uh, how they get involved. The, um, the date is on the thirteenth of October, and registration starts at nine. Um, so we've got tickets uh, for sale on the Try Booking site, um, and also you can find that Try Booking site through our Facebook on Geelong tra- uh, Trade Hall. Site and also Geelong Women Unionist Network site. 
Thanks very much for taking time to talk to us. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 So you're still listening to 3CR and uh, we're just going to go to a song now. Majesty's Con Mission Interim Report found our highly respected banks and highly responsible financial institutions were driven by greed and dishonesty. Good God, who would have thought? No, seriously, wonder how many billions of our taxes were spent to come up with the obvious. We, we could have told them that at the outset at our usual fee and saved them those billions. Suppose the consolation for the highly respected banks and highly responsible financial institutions is that the unsaved billions came from the taxes of the ripped off by greed and dishonesty. Well, for goodness sake, why should we pay taxes that are then wasted to attack us in the clearly biased way which shows just how removed his honour is from the realities of the everyday business world? It shows we have been correct in avoiding or, uh, so, sorry, uh, minimising our legal tax obligations. A number of the greedy and dishonest breathed the sigh of and expressed their relief that no criminal charges were recommended, including the former Supremo of AMP on the customers, forced to resign during the hearings, but a small warning, I, I wouldn't get too excited or start popping the French corks just yet. Following the damning report, fledgling big economic guru Josh Friedem Icebergs continued the industrious get-things-done approach he brought to frying the icebergs, announcing that like he's addressing of frying the planet, he would be just as positive and vigilant. Once again, he had the bankers and financial billionaires shaking in their Swiss leather boots. I will do nothing. Well, more correctly, Josh said, and this is a direct quote, ill-considered rules could constrict lending and hurt the economy. Yeah, like business as usual, which landed us where we are. By absolute coincidence, Josh's concern correlated word for word with the very same concerns of the banks and the financial institutions backed up by the caring business class generally, because not just the financial sector, but the caring, um, caring business class generally know self-regulation is the fail-safe control to any of them behaving badly. Uh, yes, just what exactly does self-regulation mean? Oh, well, it's obvious, really. It means we regulate for self. Uh, that's yourselves. Who else? Uh, look, it's a two-way street. We know we're ripping everyone off, and our customers know we're ripping them off. Give and take. Well, well, well take and take. 
But speaking of reports, sorry I must complain again. After last week complaining that US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, is presaging the end of satire, albeit unconsciously, which is appropriate, but imagine if in satire we said the FBI has investigated alleged sexual crimes by a Supreme Court nominee and exonerated the Supreme Court nominee without interviewing any of the accusers, alleged victims, not, nor corroborating witnesses about drinking and other relevant details from the time the allegations occurred, nor interviewed the accused, but declared there was no case to answer based on the evidence it didn't collect. We'd probably get a few little laughs, but no, foiled again. It's getting out of control. More than a bit disappointing also, the politics of envy class warfare nonsense being proposed by Her Most Gracious Majesty's opposition in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country by its out-of-control supremo Jeremy Corbyn to transfer equity in caring employers' companies to their lazy, avaricious workers. A progressive 1% a year, 10-year plan ending with those lazy, avaricious owning a whopping 10% of the company, for no greater reason than the silly socialist suggestion that without them the companies, the barons of industry, would be struggling to make a cent, or in this case a penny. What nonsense. It's just another argument for getting rid of workers altogether and the caring employers themselves doing the work. That'd teach the workers to show a bit of respect for those good enough to give their meaning, uh, give some meaning to their lives. Thankfully, true blue Aussies have been warned to watch out for this threat and cut it off at its roots, and more particularly at the ballot box, by no less a great true blue Aussie than the former High Commissioner to London, and indeed former member of the caring business class team, Alexander! Because we can all imagine how out, of con how out of control Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo little Billy Shorten ambition threatening caring employers with giving workers a share of their property and profits any day now. Particularly if someone convinces him, in Sir Humphrey's words, it would be a courageous policy. But Alexander as an interim measure, has warned great true blue Aussie corporates operating in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, true blue Aussie companies should be taking this policy seriously. Labor is determined to introduce this and, wait for it, listener, it gets worse, and other radical policies. For example, they would mandate that all big companies must have trade unionists on their boards. All utilities would be nationalised, etc., etc. Oh, and who knows what the etc., etc. might include. Alexander doesn't say how they could avoid the policy, but I think he means get out fast and set up your head office somewhere else. Exploit or, sorry, employ the thankless workers from there. Thankfully again, and let's hope he's correct, it's highly debatable that the Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country people would vote for Corbynomics, he predicted. Just, just when we thought we'd lost Alexander, he keeps turning up. 
recently scripting an extremely profound analysis of wealth and poverty. Why some people are filthy rich and lots, lots, lots more people are dirt poor, which he managed to do without once mentioning capitalism, a monumental achievement in itself. It all comes down to good parenting, he said. So there's the answer to poverty, and presumably dirt poor households or gutters or whatever are the result of bad, bad parenting. If you're poor, you had bad parents. It's as simple as that. He did point out that some silly socialist suggestions that there should be a more equitable redistribution of wealth would prevent the filthy rich investing in wealth creation, which would make the dirt poor even more dirt poor. It's obvious he's thought this argument through. Alexander also said people claim he's filthy rich because of his filthy rich parents and their filthy rich parents and the privileges, the silver spoon stuck in his mouth at birth, which clearly didn't choke him, but no, it wasn't. That wasn't that his filthy rich parents were filthy rich, but simply that they were good parents who bestowed love and caring on his siblings and him. He didn't mention bestowing filthy riches, and therefore good parenting made him the great man that he is. He's all modesty, the old Alexander. The state-caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo some guy, whose name most people can't remember, promised he would build a 450-car multi-storey car park at Frankston Station if elected. Then, next day, the Socialist Party government promised it would build a 500-car multi-storey car park at Frankston Station if re-elected. OK, the bidding stands at 500. Any advance on 500? Frankston Station seems to be the most important station in the state. Surely it's got nothing to do with the fact it sits on a 0.4% margin, or anyone might think there could be a state election in the wind. In fact, the guy whose name has, name has another policy guaranteeing we will arrive at our destinations right across the state roughly 10 minutes before the train leaves. And like all good news outlets, we conclude with the week that was sport. And the true blue Aussie capitalist review coverage of the grand final consisted of a double-page picky spread of a who's who of true blue Aussie caring business class barons of industry and a few baronesses of, and a collection of their puppets like Big Supremo scuttled them more like son and Little Billy swallowing his socialist pride to mix with the rich and powerful part of his long-term surreptitious plan to overthrow capitalism and duly bash up the workers heaps of them enjoying a few drinks and a little bite to eat. And I thought, OK, we mightn't have a lot of time for these people, but we do have to admire their resilience and dedication. Busy, busy, busy people. And let's face it, keeping evil unions and workers in their place is busy, busy, busy business. Resilience and dedication in getting out in the cold, queuing up all night in a city street just to get a precious ticket. Not unrelated, three days before the big game, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin alerted us to the gross irresponsibility and insensitivity of evil unions under unions to clog streets. Huge union rally will bring city to a standstill. 
October 23 changed the rules protest with unemotive objective phrases like Victoria's trade unions are vowing to bring Melbourne to a standstill with a huge rally calling for pay rises. As many as 150,000 people are expected to descend on the city. The protests will clog CBD streets. A similar rally in May saw roads closed and tram services disrupted. And the not unrelated bit? Two days later, the grand final parade saw the whole city closed down with the full support of the Wapping Sin. Oh, and as we would expect, finally, the aforementioned guy, whose name most people can't remember, said anyone who thinks the Socialist Party can divorce itself from the militant unions, well, they can't. And he questioned whether the evil unions would pay for the, sorry, police presence, obviously needed to protect the community from this evil protest. The government and the unions are one and the same, he warned. Oh, listener, if only. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, the voice of the community. You know, Rebecca, it amazes me that the uh, Libs get away with this idea that the Labor Party is a socialist party yeah. and that the uh, ABC is running amok with left views. <laughs> it's yeah. hilarious. It is. They're such rat bags, the Liberal Party, such mm. rat bags. Um, but you... the other thing is, is that people believe them. Yeah. What is it? <laughs> It's like a soft toy that they have to clutch to their hearts to uh, help them go to sleep at Mm -mm. night. Ridiculous lot. Um, You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Rebecca and uh, we're moving on to peace, aren't we? Yes. Yeah. Now, um, there's been over the last year, there's been this increasing uh, student movement around um, pointing out to the people in general that... uh, a lot of the uh, university uh, campuses are involved, actively involved in getting funding from large corporations that are involved in armament industries, like very big ones. Yeah, like Lockheed Martin and BEA yeah. Industries. Yeah. And in fact, people like um, the uh, Vice-Chancellor of Sydney University is actually on the board of uh, Thales. T-H-A-L-E-S, which is a major, is in fact probably the biggest um, company, but you know, you could ring me and uh, improve my knowledge. But anyway, these are really significant things. And uh, last, uh, a couple of weeks ago, in fact, uh, the um, Medical Association for Prevention of War, MAPWIP, is that how you say it? M-A-P-W? I don't know. It's a lovely collection of letters, I'll have to say. Launched their statement for students, staff and alumni to sign, calling on the Melbourne University to stop partnering, partnering with, uh, that's very hard to say, partnering, partnering with nuclear weapons companies. They did that on the 20th of September and they did it at Melbourne Uni. Uh, They've got a uh, site where you can sign the petition if you're one of those types. Many of those medical practitioners probably got their medical degree from Melbourne Uni and that's one of the reasons why they were there. But the Melbourne University is partnering with Lockheed Martin, the world's largest weapon company. 
which is heavily involved in nuclear weapons, both manufacture and deployment. And we've talked not only on this program, but Stick Together and in other places on 3CR about uh, the horrible idea that uh, perhaps people would um, decry the notion of uh, peace because everybody is involved in employment in the armaments industry, which is one of the things that the federal Liberal government has been putting money into in Australia. But anyway, I went off and I had a chat with... uh, Dr. Margaret Beavis, who is a spokesperson for um, the Medical Association for Prevention of War, who were part of this launch. So let's hear from Dr. Margaret, Margaret Beavis to hear what her perspective on the whole issue is. Now, thank you very much for talking to me, uh, Dr. Margaret Beavis. You're part of uh, a group called uh, Medical Association for Prevention of War Australia. Now, recently at Melbourne University, you launched a petition that you're hoping that people from from Melbourne University will sign. Can you explain to listeners what this is about? Yes, we're talking. We're hoping to get people who are staff or students or ex sort of alumni, people who studied in the past, because Melbourne University is actively partnering with um, Lockheed Martin and other nuclear weapons companies, um, and we believe that partnering with nuclear weapons companies is really highly unethical and completely unacceptable. So we've met with university staff to express our concerns about this. Um, We feel that they're not listening. They don't realise... I mean, they've divested from tobacco, which is fantastic, but nuclear weapons last year at the United Nations were um, banned. There was a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, and this treaty is on track to put nuclear weapons on the same footing as weapons like chemical weapons and biological weapons. Um, We think it's quite clear that universities have no place in partnering with nuclear weapons companies. In fact, there's growing divestment from nuclear weapons companies in Europe because people realise these are unacceptable investments and we're very uh, concerned that the University of Melbourne has not really, they've not applied sufficient ethical filters when they've partnered with Lockheed Martin. You know, they put their master's students and their PhD students through enormous and very rigorous ethical filters, and that's quite appropriate, but the ethical filters on this partnership seem to be either non-existent or very poor, because they're, they're, to partner with such a company is, is very surprising and very disappointing for a university like Melbourne. It's interesting because uh, right across Australia, there's been uh, student uh, action uh, uh, at universities around similar issues where universities that are becoming more and more managerial in their focus and appear to have very little uh, analysis of uh, ethical ethics when they make decisions about uh, funds. Uh, And it seems to be on the rise, or is it on the rise, do you think? Oh, absolutely. The Australian government, shamefully, since about 2010, so this is a Labor and a Liberal problem, have been really pushing defence industries as a source of jobs. Now, this is this is sort of folly on a number of levels. Um, firstly, when you look at the million dollars that's spent on defence industry versus spent on education or health or renewable energy, there's really good data coming out of America saying that, in fact, defence um, provides the least number of jobs out of such a, an amount. And um, 
There's also what they call the opportunity cost when you're focusing research on weapons. <coughs> it means there's less expert people focusing on things like renewable energy or health or education. So there's sort of two costs to it in addition to the actual harms that are done by the weapons. I mean, it's... Um, Uh, it's very surprising when you think how scathing um, Tony Abbott was about subsidising the car industry, and yet the federal government has put up $3.9 billion subsidies for the weapons industry, and we now have a minister, or have had for some time, a minister for defence industries, in other words, for a minister on behalf of weapons manufacturers. And in fact, Christopher Pine, very shamefully, went over to the Saudi Arabian um, peninsula to sell weapons to the Saudis and we know the Saudis are currently heavily involved in the war in Yemen and we know that Saudi Arabia stands accused of war crimes so Australia's uh, approach to selling weapons is, is um, incredibly um, disappointing, not even strong enough a word it's, it's irresponsible and when you think, you think about why this might be happening, I have to say that one of the things that crosses my mind is that the defence industries are much better lobbyists and they're much better at political donations than the car industry or other industries. And you do have to wonder whether, in fact, the flourishing of the defence industries is yet another argument for us to have a good um, anti-corruption body in Canberra. It's interesting, too, because uh, America, uh, uh, a lot of America's... Um Industries revolve around uh, um, armament industries themselves, Absolutely. and yeah. the yeah. same as uh, um, England's economy. And, and as someone pointed out, that it would—it's such a shameful idea that uh, if there was a break out of peace, then uh, we would we would be commiserating because of so many people whose jobs are tied to this, these industries. Yeah, the Americans are, I think it's 34% of the world's armament manufacturers. And what's very interesting is that the American election cycle is, is only every two years for the members of Congress. So they spend one year governing and one year campaigning. And they need a lot of money for that. And a lot of the um, weapons manufacturers in America are very pivotal to re-election campaigns. So there's, there's a lot of um, interaction between the weapons manufacturers and the politicians in terms of money and funding. Um, and Lockheed Martin has a long history of um, long history of corrupt behaviour. And in fact, um, if you go to the US, the US has better transparency on on um, donations and such. But there's a there's a project on government oversight of federal contractors, and the misconduct database has got over 80 entries for Lockheed Martin with misconduct involving more than $800 million in fines and damages in the last two decades. So not only is this a nuclear weapons company, it's one of the most historically corrupt companies in the world, and yet Melbourne University thinks they're acceptable to partner with. Also, the Australian government and the use of public uh, facilities, because uh, actually universities are public facilities, uh, are being used in a way that... uh, as you're pointing out in your uh, uh, the um, petition that you're asking people to sign, uh, that the, we're being asked to actually collaborate with this kind of behaviour. They're misusing public resources. Well, I think in part it's also a misallocation of public resources. I mean, one of the reasons the universities are so desperate for money and research funding 
is because the percentage of federal funds that have gone to the university has dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped. So the spending on education in the tertiary sector has fallen and fallen and fallen, and that sort of leads to an increasingly desperate um, search for research funding. And in fact, one of the search for research funding is one of the reasons when we've met with senior, um, we've met with the, the chancellor, we've met with several pro vice chancellors to, to talk to them about why this is a really unacceptable um, partnership. And some of the reasons they've given, one of the reasons they've given is in fact they need to find funds. Um, other reasons have been um, astounding. Uh, one reason was that the Lockheed Martin people were really very nice people, and another reason given was that they were dealing with Lockheed Martin Australia, and really that meant that it was all right. That you know the fact that Lockheed Martin Australia is a wholly owned subsidiary of Lockheed Martin internationally seemed to escape their attention. Um, so it's it's I think it is I think there's many factors in why the universities are doing that, but that doesn't excuse it at all that this is still an unacceptable partnership. The uh, how have people responded to your petition? Oh, it's been terrific. We've actually we're about to we just we've only just launched it and we're about to start sort of um, really promoting it and we've had a, a, a large response. It's been a lot of people have signed on, and we're getting a steady number of sign-ons. Um, if people would like to sign it, um, they go to the MAPW website, so that's the Medical Association for Prevention of War, and just click on campaigns, and it's the first one that'll come up, and they can sign it. So anyone who's been to Melbourne University or with staff at Melbourne University, or even current students, um, you can sign because it's really um, important that the university understands that these weapons are un- unacceptable. This is one step in a ca- long campaign, isn't it? Oh, yes. And the other thing is that I think, I mean, the Medical Association Prevention of War has been around for 37 years. We're not actually going away. I don't think the students who are working on Disarm Uni are going away. This is a... Um, this will take time, but they, it's, it's like tobacco. There, there is um, clear. It's absolutely clear this is the wrong thing to be doing, and and people will just keep going until they actually decide they finally will not take money from these companies. Thanks very much for talking to me. Well, pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. I love that idea. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Ari's yeah. great. Yeah, it's a solidarity breakfast with Annie and Rebecca. And uh, I was just talking to Dr. Margaret Beavis from the uh, Medical Association for the Prevention of War and um, uh, you followed up on this same story, didn't you, but in a completely different way. Yeah, so I had a chat with Van T. Rudd who is uh, a local artist from Melbourne. He used to be a student at Melbourne Uni and so he recently did a banner uh, for the campaign um, that the students are running, uh, Books Not Bombs. And so I spoke to him about that and also why he uh, decided to get involved in this campaign. Well, so, let's hear it. Yeah. Hi, my name's Van T. Rudd. I'm a visual artist based in Melbourne. Great. And you recently did a banner uh, for the campaign that... Some students at Melbourne Uni are running against Lockheed Martin. Could you describe the banner to us? Yeah, sure. Uh, I did a banner, um, I think it was around early August, for the um, Books Not 
bombs campaign, a national campaign on university campuses. And this this particular banner was for um, Melbourne University um, and the students there that were in this campaign. And basically the banner um, was uh, on um, fairly thick canvas uh, and it was, geez, um, I'd say about uh, three metres long and about two metres high. And um, basically it shows... Uh, well, firstly, I should say that it was inspired by the the well-known um, ad banner that was uh, out um, produced by Melbourne University itself, and uh, it had been there for a few years while I was a student there too. And it's of um, uh, something to do with uh, Melbourne University's um, exploration of ideas. I think uh, collision of ideas. I forget. I can't remember the actual wording, but it was these students sort of huddled together but exploding out the side of a building, and um, so I appropriated that. And uh, the students uh, this time are uh, illustrated as though they're on the the, the receiving end of a, a massive missile, uh, and and that missile I put um, on on it um, the logos of Lockheed Martin and. Um, BAE systems, and uh, of course, uh, in that sort of action that's happening in that picture, um, students are, you know, letting go of their books. You know, the books have been, um, you know, out of their grasp due to the power of the missile. Uh, so yeah, hopefully I've um, illustrated that well um, to the viewers. <laughs> yeah, and why did you choose to get involved in this campaign? Well. Um, I guess uh, due to my um, Vietnamese background and uh, the uh, war in Vietnam, but also how weapons manufacturers, uh, you know, quite um, you know, in a disgusting way, just researched um, chemical um, warfare, and uh, you know, Vietnam became one of the major testing grounds as well for um, uh, dioxins and. Um, you know, def defoliating um, chemicals for um, forests and things. So, um, yeah, I was, uh, you know, doing artworks for things related to that. Um, when uh, you, you do things like this long enough out there, people will um, kind of ask you to, to uh, contribute. Uh, this particular case was one where um, I hadn't been on campus for a while as a student. Um, so I uh, wasn't entirely aware of what was going on with this campaign, but students um, that I'd known through activism circles um, let me know about this and said, oh, would you like to do a banner for this particular launch of the Melbourne University campus campaign? And I said, hell yeah. Uh, I'd, um, I'd just done the, the mural that um, criticised... Uh, Turnbull at the time uh, and Dutton um, on their racism towards African uh, migrants. So, um, and where's that uh, located? That, uh, that, that was the one that uh, yeah was done in Kensington. Yep. And uh, so that yeah got shared around quite a bit, and um, so it was sort of coming off the back of that. And um, so we'd um, yeah sort of made an opportunity out of. Of sort of uh, getting myself to do a, um, a large banner, and uh, for the disarm 
um, Melbourne University and the Books Not Bombs campaign. Yeah, so uh, and that the banner was sort of um, up the back of the on the wall for the launch of the campaign, which had um, uh, and the university students um, speaking at it, as well as uh, the Jolly from the Victorian Socialists and um, Adam Bant from the Greens. Yeah, and is the banner still there, or I think it might be still in use because there's a few more events. Uh, Coming up for the um, for that uh, particular campaign, uh, of course it's a national campaign. So it's um, you know there's students in Western Australia um, protesting um, uh, on October 30 against a, a uh, defence uh, defence industry meeting at Crown Casino there, and and also um, uh, there's uh, October 18th uh, around Melbourne, I think, at the RECV Club, um, which is a war profiteers sort of gathering there too. So, yeah, there's, there's always stuff going on. People, I'll tell you a story, an eight-year-long story of power and pride. British Lord Vesty and Vincent Lignari were opposite men on opposite sides. Vesty was fat with money and muscle. Beef was his business, broad was his door. Vincent was lean and spoke very little He had no bank balance, hard dirt was his floor From little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow The Ringy were working for nothing but rations but once they had gathered the wealth of the land Daily the pressure got tighter and tighter The Ringer decided they must make a stand They picked up their swags and started off walking At what it creek they sat themselves down Now it don't sound like much But it sure got tongues talking Back at the homestead And then in the town From little things Big things grow From little things Big things grow Well, we've come to the end of a show, Rebecca. Uh, I've noticed that... Uh, the West Palpuans are getting themselves organised for December the 1st. Yes. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, we're going to dedicate a show uh, to to celebrate the uh, Morning Star and, yeah, their day that should have been their Independence Day back in the early 60s. Uh, they celebrate that every December 1st, so we're going to... Yeah, do that. It's oh, a Saturday fantastic. this year, so yeah. yeah. 
And also they've got coming up um, what's called a barapen, which is a traditional way of cooking West Papuan food in the ground with hot rocks. Yeah. Um, yeah, so also the Black Orchid String Band will be there playing songs. Uh, we heard a song earlier in the show from them. And also there'll be outdoor cinema. So that's on the 20th of October in East Brunswick, 38 Harrison Street. And I'm sure they'll be also promoting that on their show on Tuesday. No, it's okay. I just thought you were going to bring the music up. Ah, okay. No, it's okay. We'll, what we'll do, <laughs> I, I gave yes. my, my uh, obviously my Aslan is, uh, Ausland is uh, deficient, but never mind. We've come to the end of the program. I'm glad you told us about what's going on with yep. the West Papians. It's always good to keep an eye on what they're doing. Uh, the, uh, it's a fundraiser, I guess, and also, uh, also it's, um, you know, West Papua is on our doorstep and uh, we don't want to be complicit in the uh, destruction of such a fantastic uh, homeland or of uh, such fantastic peoples. Yeah. Uh, the fight's on. Uh, the program today, we uh, talked to Don Sutherland about uh, what's happening with uh, Labor Party industrial relations on a federal level and uh, then we moved on to talk to the... Uh, Women at uh, Geelong Trades Hall and their upcoming conference, which you can find out more about if you go online to uh, uh, Geelong Trades Hall. Uh, it's on uh, October the 13th and it's all about uh, getting organised, working women getting organised, the fight for equal pay. You're going to go down there and investigate them closer up, aren't yes. you? Yes. Yeah. So Ask we'll expect a report about and that. Meet some more women. Press yeah. some flesh. And then we moved on to peace with uh, what's going on at Melbourne University and their uh, diabolical connections with uh, the very nice people at Lockheed Martin. Uh, We're going to go out with a song and uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Adios, amigo. Moving, what were we doing besides looting and rogue army recruiting? Where when the hell was straight off the dome left to seize for their place to call home? We know now.
Just across the border, bricks and mortar. Ought to keep our mouth so we don't see who we're killing. Whose blood we're spilling, no. Just across the border, bricks and mortar. Ought to keep our mouth so we don't see who we're killing. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.